So have you ever gotten into a discussion with somebody about God and then they think they have you and they say something like this. Well, look, look at all the evil in the world. There can't possibly be a God. And we've, we've all probably had discussions like that before. Um, I just want to look at, at, at sort of the logic that's often presented here. Um, yeah, that's good. Uh, we're going to go through these. These are, these are points that people often make in order to get that, to that conclusion. So they'll first say something like, well, a God that is all-powerful would be able to prevent evil from suffering, point number one. And then point number two, they would say, a God that is all-knowing would know that evil and suffering happen. And then they'd say point three, a God that is all-loving wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen and would take needed action to stop it. And then point four, evil and suffering happen. And so their conclusion, since evil and suffering exist, an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving God cannot exist. And, and oftentimes we as, we as Christians, we don't have an answer to that. You know, we're like going, uh, uh, because the reality is point one is true, point two is true, point four is true. It's the point three that we allow ourselves to stumble when we shouldn't. You know, we, the, this, the point is that, that God is all loving, wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen in the world and would take the needed action to stop it. You know, perhaps there is a reason for suffering. Perhaps there's a reason for the evil in the world that you and I don't grasp in our limited knowledge that actually serves a purpose. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to actually delve into a passage that's familiar to us, but a passage that as Christians uh, we really need to know well and, uh, and, uh, and understand kind of the world that we, that we live in today. So our lectionary is going to take us to Genesis chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, I just uh, invite you to take your Bibles out and, um, and then we'll delve into this passage, Genesis chapter 3. Is anybody cold? My, my son was cold last week. Okay, so uh, Ron, would you mind just turning that up a bit? Yeah. Because the last thing I want is that people would be cold and they can't listen because they're freezing to death. <laughs> in, the, in the first service, um, the, the older women sometimes come up to me and, uh, and it, literally I just touch their hands and they're like, going, oh, you're freezing, aren't you? Yeah. So <laughs> okay, so we don't want anybody to be cold today. Great. Okay, so let's get the context for Genesis chapter 3. Okay, so Genesis chapter 1 is the creation narrative. And it's this glorious statement about the creation of the world. And the thing to note about Genesis chapter 1 is there's this amazing description of humanity. You know, human beings are different from the rest of creation. Uh, human beings were created in the image of God. No other, no other creature were created in the image of God. Human beings were given a vocation, and they alone had an intimate relationship with God. You know, Adam and Eve walked with God every day. It was... That they just had this intimacy with him. And then that day all changed. It all changed when Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And today we continue to, to feel the ramifications of that event which happened so long ago. Philosopher uh, Blaise Pascal says, Man is the glory and the shame of the universe. So how did this come about? How did man that was created in so much glory then become the state that he is today? 
God gave the first human beings a territory. He said, this is your territory. I'm giving all this to you. And he gave it to them to explore. He gave it to them to work. This is all yours. See all these trees? All these, you can eat of any one of them with one exception. There's one tree. I'm asking you not to eat from the fruit of that one tree because if you do, you will die. One thing that they were prevented from doing. Now, our secular world has convinced us that Christianity has a problem with evil. I mean, this is our Achilles heel. I mean, this is the thing. You know, this is, this is the reason why people should really doubt Christianity. He, they say, if there's a God, he is either powerless to stop evil or he spitefully enjoys watching people suffer. And oftentimes, Christians feel, you know, they're cornered. Oh, my gosh, you're right. That's true. That's true. And they begin to doubt their faith because they allow the person from the outside to say, well, there's only two options. When really, that's not true. It's not true. There's another way to look at this. There are other explanations. Yes, God allows evil to happen, but he does so for a purpose. And we need to understand that. Now, evil is a much bigger problem, actually, for atheists than it is for Christians. You know, in a world without God, there is no standard. You know, what I call right, you call wrong. And what you call wrong, you know, I call right. And so philosopher David Hume said centuries ago, without God, there only is. There is no ought. And so the belief that there is a right and wrong is a strong argument for the existence of God because it means that there is a standard that's been set up, that, that has been set up by God. Now, Genesis reveals that God is the one who establishes the boundaries. He says what is right and wrong. And we might say to ourselves, and maybe you've heard other people say that, you know, really, what was the big deal? They ate, from, they ate fruit from a tree. What's the big deal about that? You know, they didn't hurt anybody else, right? They just ate from a, from a tree. Well, the big deal is, is that God said it was wrong. God told them not to do that. God set that up, and that was his standard. They were not to eat from that tree. Now, Genesis 3 opens with the introduction of a figure that previously we've not heard of. He's not described in Genesis 1, Genesis 2. You know, and this is the serpent. Now, in, in the ancient Near East, um, serpents were actually um, very common symbols for deities and, and also for fertility. And so if you go to archaeological sites and these former Canaanite areas, you'll actually see uh, all kinds of images of, of serpents um, that were a part of that culture at that time. Now, the serpent in Genesis 3 is not an independent being. He's not separate from God. He's a created being. So he's created just like everything else. He possesses no occult powers. He's, we're not told he has any kind of you know, powers at all. He's a creature. He's not even described of as evil in Genesis 3. He's only described as being very shrewd. And the serpent seeks to seduce the woman into eating the forbidden fruit. To seduce the woman into into breaking uh, the standard that God has established. And he's a master, a master at distorting reality. So at first he exaggerates and he said, did God say you can't eat from any of the fruit of the trees? 
And, and the woman says, no, of course he didn't say that. That's not what he says. And, and as, he, as she's trying to straighten him out, then he insinuates, well, the reason, the reason God doesn't want you to eat from the, the tree is because he, because then if you do, you'll become like God. You'll become like God and you will know good and evil the same way that God does. And all of a sudden, that fruit looks pretty, pretty tempting. It looks pretty good. Wow, we can be like God. We can, we can be like him. And so the woman eats, and so does the man. They ate from the forbidden tree. We learn one of the most important reasons here why God allows evil. To give human beings free choice. Humans are not robots. He didn't make us to be robots, but he created us in order to make choices. And he wants us either to choose him or to reject him. He's given us that freedom. We can, choose to, to, we can choose to follow God or we can choose to rebel against him. It is a choice that is given to us. Even though that choice of rejecting him may lead to our suffering, God has allowed that to be a possibility. In rejecting God, their conception of God, that Adam and Eve's conception of God is now changed. So previously their conception of God is, well, God is our protector. God is the one who, who provides safety and security for this. And afterwards, now God becomes a barrier, a barrier that we have to circumvent and get around in order to know genuine truth. Do you see how God is not viewed the same way anymore? He's changed in their conception. Now, in response, so here Adam and Eve have just done this horrific thing. You know, we might expect God to come and, and be very judgmental. We might expect God to be really furious and start yelling and judging them. And what have you done? You know, these things. But look at what God does. He just has these very gracious words. And he asks them, where are you? Where are you? Where are you? And the thing of it is, they didn't know the answer. Adam and Eve didn't know the answer because their whole world, the world that they known had collapsed before them. You know, as they looked around, nothing looked the same anymore. They were lost. They were lost in a, in a new reality that they didn't understand. It was like they'd been through this huge earthquake and everything is devastated around them and they just, they don't even know how to respond to it. They found themselves disoriented and filled with fear because the world that they knew had now vanished. In Genesis 3, verses 14 through 19, we find a description of this new world. We, we, we get a description of what this new world, this new world that's now been created as a result of their rebellion, would now look like under, under this new regime. Adam and Eve would now be alienated from each other. So it used to be that they were drawn to each other, now they were alienated from each other. They saw their nakedness and they were ashamed and so they sewed fig leaves in order to make loincloths for themselves. Their marriage became distorted. Rather than it being about loving and cherishing, it becomes about desire and domination. The women became alienated from, from, from her calling in life, which, which was to bear children. The woman would now experience pain in childbirth. So the most natural thing that she was created for would now be a source of pain and emotional horror. She would, she would be filled with, with all kinds of turmoil when it comes to fertility and infertility. 
At the same time, she would experience pain and sorrow in giving birth to her children. And indeed, you know, we think we've conquered this today, but you know, there are places in the world like Afghanistan and the Central African Republic where 1.5% of pregnancies will cause the death of the woman. And so pregnancy can become a scary thing in places like that. The man likewise will become alienated from his vocation. The ground would now be cursed in hard labor, frustration, and perspiration. It wasn't supposed to be that way. Verse 8 suggests that humans will never subdue the earth in their present condition. And you remember from Genesis 1, that's what they were supposed to do, to subdue the earth. But now that wouldn't become a possibility. Nature now will always remain untamed and encroaching, whether it's by fire, tornadoes, hurricanes, flooding, or volcanoes, as we heard this morning. The first human beings became alienated from their surroundings. So God ejected them from the garden and sent them to a land east of the garden. They became alienated from life itself. So the tree of life that was supposed to enable them to live forever was taken away from them. So now they would die. And they became alienated from God. And so the sound of his voice caused them to hide from his presence. The intimate fellowship that they once had with their creator, where they once found safety, acceptance, and security, was now replaced by fear. You know, so as we gather today, centuries later, you know, as we gather centuries later, we live in this existence, in this existence that Adam and Eve suddenly felt. So they went from this incredible state to the state we are in today. We are alienated from the very same things Adam and Eve were. Paul tells us in Romans chapter 5, verse 12, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin. And so death spread and all men be, and, and to all men because all have sinned. The original blessings given to humanity at creation have been corrupted because of that original rebellion. So what kind of movies do you like to watch? What kind of TV series do you like to watch? You don't watch it well. Uh, some people do. And, and some of the most, it's interesting, if you, if you look at sort of the genre of these movies, you know, one of the most common genre of movies that you actually find on Netflix or TV series are, is survival in, po in post-apocalyptic worlds. Uh, how many of you guys watch any of those? I'll leave some examples. It might be The Matrix. Uh, World War Z, The 100, Walking Dead, Survivors, Z Nation, Rain, Extinct. There are many, and I could go on and on and on. Do any of you guys watch this? Okay, see, so yeah, just admit it. I know you guys do, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. So why the fascination? Why the fast? Why are there so many of these movies? I mean, literally, you could binge watch these movies almost every day for years. There's so many of them. There's tons of them. So why... Why are our fascination with these kinds of survival and, and post-apocalyptic worlds? Why the fascination? Perhaps because it represents the existence we live in. No one is consciously aware of it. But unconsciously, each of us is trying to survive in a world that has gone awry. 
we know in the deepest, deepest recesses of our heart that something is wrong. And we're trying to survive in this world where everything just doesn't work the way it should. The disaster already occurred long ago before we were born. And now we must try to figure out how to live in this broken place. It's inside of us. None of us are happy the way that God intended us to be happy. None of us have any idea of the joy that, that God intended us to have. None of us in this planet is so confident and so secure in their, in their sense of who they are as, per, as persons as Adam and Eve were before they realized that they were naked. None of us have any idea of that. We exist in the wreckage of a, of a, of a, of a Hiroshima bomb and we're just trying to try to survive in it. As terrible as it is to think about these things, as ugly it is to, to face this reality, we have to believe that something has gone wrong as we walk around holding on to our wounds. And it's only when we grasp that this is not the world that God intended for us that we can begin to put our suffering, our emptiness, our frustrations, our broken relationships, our unfulfilled dreams, and all the evil that is in the world into perspective. What is astounding is that in the midst of this ravaged world that we live in, this ravaged creation caused by the first human beings, God does not abandon Adam and Eve. He could have destroyed them. He could have said, forget about them. Let them wallow in their, in their pain. But he didn't. He went out looking for them in the garden in the same way that he had done even before they, they, had, they had rebelled against him. Because the desire of God's heart is to be in relationship with us. Even a broken humanity, God seeks to be in relation with us. He doesn't allow their sin to separate himself from them. Some people say, well, couldn't God just make everything right? Couldn't God just, you know, flick her magic wand and suddenly everything would be made right? All the evil would be gone. Everything would be, would be good like it was in the beginning. Yes, he could do that. Absolutely, he could do that. But what would happen? We'd rebel again. We'd rebel again because our minds, our wills, our emotions exist under the domination of sin. It would just happen again. The cycle would never end. Unfortunately, most of us have gotten used to living in the pain of our world. We, we, we've just accepted that this is, this is the way it is. And so it's hard for us even to grasp how bad things are. We don't understand just really how bad things are, but they are. Theologian Reinhold Niebuhr has commented that the modern man has an essentially easy conscience just because he doesn't understand his sin. And so is there any hope for this creation that is so broken? Is there any hope for us? So the May 21st cover of Time Magazine poses this question. Can bad men change? 
And, and the gist of the article describes a segment of society, a segment of society that is so heinous, so evil, that even after they serve long terms of imprisonment, even after they have, um, e even after they've been set free from parole and they no longer have to see their parole officers, that their names will still be kept on a state registry for decades and sometimes for the rest of their lives. These men are not murderers. These men are not violent felons. They're sex offenders. Their lives will never be the same because society has no way of transforming their lives to ensure that they will never commit evil again. And the truth is, however, society has no way of ensuring any of us will never commit evil again either. And the only difference between their sin and ours is that ours is often done in secret and doesn't hurt other people, but it's still evil. And so, is there hope for us? I want you to look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. This is um, a famous verse. It is, it is uh, often been called the most important verse in all the Bible, in Genesis 3.15. And, and um, sometimes it's even called the first proclamation of the gospel in the, in the Bible as well. And it says this. This is God, and he's speaking to the serpent, and he says this to the serpent. Uh, and you can show it, actually, Morgan. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now the word bruise actually means to crush, to crush. And in this case, crushing of the head would suggest a final and, and complete blow to, to the head and which would lead to the destruction of. And so a crushing of the head spells defeat the, the bruising of the heel would suggest uh, a serious wound, but not something that would actually destroy. So what we have in this verse is actually a symbolic picture of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the cross. He is the offspring. He is the offspring that is bruised by Satan during his suffering and death upon the cross. But in his resurrection... He brings a crushing blow to Satan and his offspring that will end his dominion and end his, his perpetuation of sin and death in the world. Now this passage, this Genesis 3 passage, ends with, I think, a very fitting conclusion. And it's the clothing, God's clothing of Adam and Eve uh, with animal skins that he, that he has made for them. So these are, these are coats of animals that, that cover the guilty men with unmerited favor. I mean, God is showing them favor. God is showing them love at this moment. The animal is slain, the innocent for the guilty, in order that the human beings might be covered up. And in so doing, it foreshadows the ultimate sacrifice that is to come that God himself will send his son who will lay down his life in order to cover the sins of, this, of the human race. The world says a God that is all loving wouldn't want evil and suffering to happen and would take the needed action to stop it. 
The fact of the matter is, is that God has already done that. He's already done just that through the sacrifice of his son. So there is a way out. There is a way out of this apocalypse. There is an escape that we can take. God has provided it, and it's available to every human being. But human beings still have a choice whether to accept that escape plan or to reject that escape plan. It's available to them in the reign of Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. So how will you use your free choice? Let's pray.